And here he is, Dr. Michael Caparelli. How are you, sir? Hi, Stephen. Everything is great. Glad to be on your show. Thank you for this opportunity. Ah, our pleasure entirely. Thank you for joining us. Um, maybe you could let our audience know uh, what it is you do, what keeps you busy. I'm a PhD in behavioral science. I teach as a professor at three colleges in psychology, criminal psychology, abnormal psych. Um, I'm also or was for many years a pastor in the prisons working with inmates. So I come from a dual perspective of both the psychological background, as well as uh, if you want to call it a religious or spiritual perspective. I met with David Berkowitz, also known as the son of Sam, uh, convicted serial killer. He's been incarcerated for 46 years. I met him in New York in prison for 34 sessions, one-on-one, -on -one, the longest analysis of David Berkowitz ever. And we discussed the mental health factors that were behind his killings, his 20, um, I'm sorry, his 13 uh, shootings in New York City back in the 70s, as well as the 1,400 fires that he lit while he was at loose in society. And uh, we also talked about his last 46 years in prison, what that's been like. And the findings have been included in a book called Monster Mirror. It was ranked number one on Amazon in the true crime new release section. And it is a book that I believe is necessary in a day and age where there are mass shootings, uh, 13 a week in the United States of America. Um, and it, it sheds some light on some of the mental health factors behind senseless violence. Yeah, that, that's a, a huge start, especially to a Brit. That really is that's quite, quite mind blowing. So there's a lot to pick up on there. That That's fascinating. I suppose it might be a good time to uh, mention to people in the comments to get some questions in uh, for Michael as well. But tell me about your time as sort of a, a pastor in the prison service. I mean, obviously, there are people in there maybe in and out of prison all their life looking for some sort of you know spiritual guidance some answers and, and what what was your experience of going in there and uh, i suppose a lot of people are curious as to how how in intimidating of an environment is that to enter and try to offer people help well for me it wasn't intimidating not to be a tough guy but i grew up in a home where my dad was in prison visited him behind bars so i was already sort of acclimated to that that culture. I mean, I've seen a lot of things as a kid growing up with the police raiding our apartment that you don't see in, in childhood homes. I mean, I could, if I told you my story, it would sound like Goodfellas or some type of mob movie. Um, you'd think I was watching too many Hollywood flicks, but it was a reality. And then uh, when I grew old, I became, uh, grew into adulthood, became a Christian, uh, pastored, worked with many inmates, and most of them did not experience the same change that david berkowitz experienced yeah in fact and, um, I, work, I work with two other serial killers before david that played many psychopathic games and the relationships came to a halt uh that was not the case with david berkowitz well i mean this this you know working as a pastor in the prison is fascinating to me and i'm just wondering in, in your uh view what does a sort of religious, or I suppose in your perspective, Christian framework offer people in that scenario that perhaps maybe a secular world view wouldn't, or a secular philosophy? What is it about religious faith you think that offers people hope? Well, you know, as a Christian, we believe right off the gate that mankind is sinful, uh, that that's our 
predisposition inherited from Adam and Eve in the garden. The humanistic worldview, which is sort of the prevalent mindset of most people in American culture, at least, is that mankind is good. So when these sorts of things happen, it's anomalous. It's a shock. The fact that we as Christians believe mankind is is sinful, made in the image of God, but that image being tarnished by sin, it's not so much of a shock. Not that it's uh, any less evil. It is absolutely evil what David Berkowitz did in the 70s when he gunned down 13 people, taunted the police, wrote letters to the media. I mean, absolute barbaric and uh, atrocious, his crimes. But as, as a Christian, we understand the sinful nature, and we're not quick to put people in the category of psychopath. In fact, one of the things I would argue in this book is that there is a, a potential psychopath in everyone. Um, and that is a Christian presupposition. If you mull over resentments for six months, resentments of people that have hurt you, betrayed you, if you isolate from people, if you berate yourself, every opportunity you get, every mistake you make, you justify every wrongdoing for a period of six months, you'd be shocked at what you might evolve into. In fact, this book is a unique perspective because I'm not looking at David as an other person. I'm looking at him as the boy next door. I call it a monster mirror because he is a mirror, I believe, at what's hidden within the hearts of most people. Uh, it's just a matter of circumstance. It's a matter of evolution that you and I, anybody, can evolve into a violent offender. Now, that's not a quick journey. That's a trajectory. Um, I think crime and punishment brings that trajectory to the light back in the late 1800s. A classic book shows you how a man can evolve into a, a, a maniac. Uh, but that's David Berkowitz's story. He's not the monster from the abyss. He's the boy next door, and he found comfort in Christianity because he found the mercy and the grace for that particular sinful nature. Okay. I mean, that's a good answer. Something you pointed out there, which uh, I wanted to pick up on, uh, was, you know, David's penchant for, as you mentioned, writing letters to the media and the police. And we've seen that before with other serial killers. You know, the Zodiac Killer was known for this. I mean, even I think Jack the Ripper. Uh, just keeping it British for a moment, uh, was known for that. I mean, what what is it about that aspect of the the mentality that you know compels them to almost rub it in the faces of the people that are trying to catch them? Because that seems that seems kind of abnormal behavior on top of abnormal behavior. Oh, no doubt abnormal. I mean, it deviates from functional behavior. Um, so I'm not arguing that this behavior is not abnormal or not dysfunctional. I'm just arguing that the dysfunction, the abnormality is within all of our reach, given the wrong set of uh, choices. But going back to your question about the letters, you're right. It's very common for a lot of the mass shooters, even in today's society, um, school shooters. I put them in the category of mass shooters more than serial killers because of the nature of the crime. If I had time to talk about its pathology, I could show you why he's more of a mass shooter than a serial killer per se. But uh, there is definitely a mentality amongst mass shooters of being an outsider, being on the fringes. In fact, David uses that language in some of his letters. I'm an outsider watching the world go by, programmed to kill. Um, so this outsider mentality, yearning for significance, yearning for belonging, wanting to connect. Obviously, the method being used to connect and find significance is his 
debased as it gets. Uh, but if we're talking motivation, it's it's certainly this uh, need for attention and for significance that you see not just in David's case, but in many of the outsiders that commit these crimes. In fact, that's probably one of the common denominators between a lot of mass shootings is they have this outsider mentality. Um, but don't think of outsider as uh, Ted Kaczynski, uh, the Unabomber, a hermit in the woods with a long shaggy beard. David Berkowitz grew up in New York City, surrounded by people, most populated city in America. So outsider is not always the loner in the corner. Sometimes it's the loner in the crowd. There's a big difference between being with people and bonding with people. And I discuss this in depth in my book um, because that kind of isolation and loneliness, I think most re readers are going to relate to where you can be surrounded by people, but still feel completely disconnected and not derive uh, what you need to get from social connection. And isolation, by the way, the data is plentiful in behavioral science to show that isolation can pave the way for violence and for aggressiveness. Um, we certain, certainly saw that in 2020, 2021, when many of us were quarantined, uh, secluded from each other, and there was a great deal of con contention in social media and in the culture. And make no mistake about it, the isolation was one of the underpinnings of this of this increase in aggression. Now, it's not the only ingredient in the recipe for violence. I described nine ingredients in the book, but it's certainly one of those factors. That's a great answer. And I found it interesting that you spoke a lot about choices and obviously getting in the mindset where you take responsibility for your own choices, I suppose. But I suppose in, in your experience as a pastor in the, the, the penal system, you would have come across a lot of people who had just the most awful start in life due to things that maybe happened to them in their childhood, things they'd experienced. And it can be very easy to see how they may end down a certain path because of that i mean how do you factor that kind of thing into the idea of of choice it seems like some people are just going to have a bad time of it and make the wrong choices by design because of things that happened that were completely out of their control in my book monster mirror which you can get on amazon or barnes and noble it's not just the story of the traumas that david endured as a child and there were many he was shamed in his uh, upbringing many times shame was another ingredient in this recipe called violence um, he experienced abandonment. I mean, I discuss all of these things that happened to him, but more importantly is, is the word you use. We come to an intersection where we make a choice after being abandoned, after being shamed. We make a decision. We don't just make a decision. A decision makes us. We don't just make that choice, but the choice begins to shape us into a certain kind of person. And I describe that evolution in the book uh, because choices, yes, decisions played a significant role. David Berkowitz is not at all making excuses for his, his murders. Um, these are simply explanations. An excuse is to pardon him from consequences, to say he's off the hook. He made some very clear, definitive choices, and those choices are articulated in nuance within the book and can show you how one can evolve from a baby into a pure psychopath. Is it true that somebody slashed his throat in prison and David's response to this was kind of to say, well, yeah, that seems fair enough, given what I've done. And he refused to kind of name the person responsible. Yeah, he actually has a slash from here. I'm, and I'm, I've met with them now maybe 50 times 
34 was for the case study that we conducted, but then another 14, 15 or so, just personal one-on-one. I go up there once a month now, but he has a slash from all the, from maybe about, I want to say 12 inches a foot all the way from the back of his neck, just about touching his juglia. Wow. And his first response, his first response wasn't, I deserved it. His first response was, this guy's a real pain in the neck. That was his first <laughs> response. And then later on, after he was, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 stitches, um, he he looked back retrospectively and he thanks God. He believes it was a close call. And he's had many of those close calls that are detailed in the book. Uh, another one being the moment of his arrest. You know, you can think about the tension in New York City, the NYPD surrounding his car with weapons. Uh, a lot of narrow escapes, a lot of close calls, a man who's now 71 years old and looks back, not looking to get out, believes he deserves his sentence, but trying to make the most of the time that he has left by telling his story. Well, t- tell me about the man, because you've been sat face to face many times with him. You've looked him in the eye, you spent time with him. I mean, if you didn't know what he was responsible for, I mean, how would you describe him in terms of, you know, his persona, how he holds himself, the way he speaks? I mean, what kind of feelings do you get about him as, a, as an individual? The characteristics that I describe in the book about David Berkowitz and what I know of him personally fly in the face of who he was back in the 1970s. I'll describe those characteristics in a minute, but they absolutely contradict the psychopathic criteria. Here's checklist, the doc triad, whatever criteria you want to use to measure violent offenders, the characteristics he exhibits now contradict that. Um, Now, that doesn't mean at that time he was not a psychopath. He was absolutely a psychopath. Low empathy, calculating, inability to take responsibility, deceitful, exploit people's weaknesses. Uh, But what he has become uh, since his conversion in 1988 He's become an empathetic man. He's become uh, very uh, remorseful, uh, very quick to own his his crimes and to admit in the book, he makes a shocking confession, admitting a lie that he told for many years. Uh, And he could have easily. I don't want to give up that that ending, but it's called shocking confession at the end of the book. He could have easily skirted away from the responsibility, but he didn't. Now, people say to me, how do you know it's not an act? I've dealt with inmates for a long time. I know what a jailhouse conversion looks like. They usually last about three to six months. And it's usually right before a parole hearing. David Berkowitz has been walking the walk for 35 years. Doesn't mean he's not perfect, but it's hard to put on an act for 35 years. Now, let me say this. I didn't just see David Berkowitz's actions. People can put on an act. Actions can be deceiving. You know, they usually say actions are a better test of character than speech. Well, there's something better than actions, and that's reactions. I've seen David Berkowitz's reactions. That's actions when he's caught off guard, taken by surprise, when things don't go the way he wants them to go. I walked into one session. He had uh, went through a conflict with an inmate, and David was enraged. He was in bad headspace. And I described that angry moment in the book in Chapter 2. And I watch David Berkowitz manage the anger. And we walk through a very uh, deep road of introspection. Usually when people get angry, they externalize. They talk about what's outside them. And David Berkowitz, after being insulted by another inmate, uh, I watch him react and how he handles that anger. 
I watch how he exhibits empathy. He knows names and stories of people in the prison that need prayer. I mean, knows details about their life and tears up when we pray for these people. So I've seen reactions, not just actions. And for me, uh, after 100 hours of being face to face and a man that's dealt with serial killers in the past, I believe that this is a true conversion, a true transformation, not arguing that he should be released. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that right now behind bars, he's making good use of his time. That's a great answer. And I mean, it's fascinating to hear that he kind of takes ownership of his actions. And obviously there's a lot of mythology and conspiracy uh, and interest in some of the stated reasons he gave at the time of his arrest. You know, the dog being, I suppose, the most infamous uh, one. And, and what's how's that evolved over the years to get us to somewhere which is slightly more understandable for the layman? Because I think we're all we all want this idea sometimes of like we need we want to sit across from a person like that and ask them why. And I think we sometimes expect perfectly logical answers for illogical behavior. And it never really works like that. And I just wanted to get your perspective on his justifications now for some of the things he did. Well, let me say his transformation happened within the social context. It was vertical between him and God, but it had to make its way into the horizontal plane. Um, he acclimated to a community. And think about it. That's the thing he was starving for in secular society that he never had. Uh, not making excuses. That's no excuse for, for the crimes he committed. But it explains some of his uh, deranged behavior is that kind of isolation. So now he's acclimated to a community. And uh, the way he reasons through those crimes he sees it as a combination of psychological breakdowns from the age of five years old. Actually, even before that, going all the way back really to the womb, I talk about prenatal development from a scientific vantage point, what happens in the womb, uh, all the way through his childhood, psychological breakdowns. But he also believes that there is a supernatural reality. He believes in demonic entities, something that I, I also subscribe to. But not at the expense of free will, not at the expense of natural phenomenon, uh, but a predatory, uh, you know, demonic realm that sort of preys on weaknesses, preys on vulnerabilities, risk factors. And I articulate in the book those risk factors and the interplay between those risk factors, the shame, the isolation, the abandonment, the interplay between those risk factors and this demonic diabolical realm that most of us are scratching the surface and trying to explain because let's face it it's beyond reason uh but we can certainly say there are moments in our life where we get carried away and we blow it in some way we might yell scream punch a wall kick a cat and when it's all done we say i don't know what possessed me i don't know yeah. what got into me we insinuate a, a paranormal reality that almost meets us at the point of our choices and takes over almost like drinking too much alcohol and getting carried away or something coming into you that takes you further than you'd ever want to go. Okay. I mean, let's just um, accept some sort of supernatural influence. Let's say you've termed it demonic there that gets us and, and uh, compels us to behave in less than favorable ways. How does that then chime with this, the sort of concepts of, of free will, free will and the kind of, uh, you know, omnipotent uh, characterization of the, the God of the Bible. And, and I suppose you said something interesting there in terms of things that can happen in the womb to people that can, uh, you know, affect them 
as they're older. And obviously that's not a conscious choice if you're developing in the womb. That's not a question of free will, I would presume, if you're in the room. How do you kind of tie them things together then? Well, I'm not going to say that someone is demonically affected because they've been hurt in the womb. I think it's a matter of permission. You've got to open the door and let in the devil, so to speak. Um, you know, if you got rats, chances are, you you know, you got garbage around the house and you got to throw the garbage out to get rid of the rats. Um, so, you know, if there is some demonic presence, it didn't, it's not like the Hollywood movies where it kind of latches onto you without any involvement or participation in your part. I mean, that's just, that's more mythology, Hollywood films. That's not reality. Yeah. Reality is, I think if you're talking this kind of stuff, you got to keep in mind free will. You have to keep in mind human responsibility. The devil made me do it is not going to work. It's not, it's not true. It's, you know, it doesn't work that way. David's not saying that. Um, but go, if you want to talk prenatal development, which is a little bit of a separate topic, I mean, we know uh, lots of information now about what happens in the womb. I mean, let's take one of the studies done on babies that were born during 9-11 in New York City. Moms that were pregnant that lived in lower Manhattan during post 9-11, an environment of panic and stress. Those babies are now, or fetuses rather, are now in their 20s. And they have a higher probability of PTSD because in the womb, they were in the womb when mom was living in lower Manhattan in an environment of fear, anxiousness, and panic. So, I mean, that's just one study of many that I could quote. Um, I teach these things in my psychology classes, but we're learning more and more about that prenatal time and how it shapes us. Now, look, that's not it. You can't say what happened in David's prenatal development is the reason. Here's the problem, Stephen. When we look for explanations on how this sort of thing happens, we've got to watch out for a common trap known as causal reductionism to take a complex phenomenon and reduce it to one single cause. That would be as idiotic as playing the game Jenga and you put the last block, the tower collapses and you blame the last block. It's not one block. It's a buildup of blocks that leads to the collapse of the tower and I describe in the book the buildup of blocks that leads to the breakdown of this man named David Berkowitz, who became the son of Sam. I mean, I, obviously, you, you've spent so much time face to face with him. So I want to try and pull the conversation back to that and just pick your brain. Yeah, it feels like a unique opportunity. What What was his perception of you? Then, how did you feel? How he perceived you? How he treated you? How he responded? to the things you were asking him? Were there any moments where it kind of got a bit testy perhaps when you perhaps pushed too much or he thought perhaps you had less than honest intentions? Well, you know, it began with me mailing him a copy of one of my prior books, a book on mental health from a Christian perspective called Dr. Jesus. I mailed <laughs> it to him and uh, I basically take, you know, the science and I combine it with the scriptures. He read it in maybe two weeks because he wrote, he wrote me back right away. And I, I, this is my first point of contact. I only knew him through seeing his story on TV. And um, I wasn't anticipating any of this. I just wanted to, my heart for prison is bless him with a book. And he asked me to come visit. He said, I've been waiting for a guy like you, somebody that has a Christian background, but can articulate the psychological. Um, he said, would you visit me? I, I gladly responded. I showed up the first visit, April 1st, 2022. It was during COVID, so we both wore masks. It's kind of funny that he was a stickler for the rules, 
making sure he kept his mask on. But I kept looking at the correctional officer every time they turn around for me to pull my mask down. And here's the convicted serial killer telling the clergyman to put his mask back on. And it really showed me that the line between good and evil is made with a dry erasable marker and not a Sharpie. Um, <laughs> but uh, during that first visit, you know, it began kind of, um, it was always cordial, always respectful. But I got a feeling early on that the crimes themselves were off the table. He did not want to discuss the actual crimes. He would talk about all the events leading to it and after it, but not the crimes itself. However, after spending months and showing myself to be a friend and implementing what's known as tactical empathy, that might sound like manipulation, but manipulation is me trying to move you in my agenda, according to my agenda. Uh, tactical empathy is more about me trying to move you through the empathetic bond into a place that's beneficial for you. I mean, counselors use this all the time. Uh, behavioral scientists use this. The FBI uses this. The CIA uses this. So lots of tactical empathy coming from a sincere place. I genuinely care about inmates going back to my dad when I was a kid. And by the way, I, I was locked up at 17 for a brief time. I wasn't, a, wasn't always a good kid. <laughs> but uh, so my life changed at 18 right after I, I left juvenile jail. But after that tactical empathy and that bond developed over the course of time, the walls came down and David started sharing stuff that's been heavy on him for a long time. And he, he realized that your secrets make you sick. And confession is cathartic. Confession is therapeutic. It's transformative. And uh, we got closer and closer to talking about the actual crimes. And he made some shocking, he made a shocking confession uh, at the end of the book. And uh, we went a lot further than he ever wanted to go and a lot further than I thought we would ever go. Just, yes, yeah, so obviously we'll, we'll have to pick up the book to get further details on that for sure but i mean just as a general curiosity it may seem a little bit strange to some people that you know a renowned serial killer this huge name in the world can basically just invite people to come and have a sit down and talk i mean how does that work what what is the process what's the administrative headache for someone like you rocking up there and just having a conversa conversation with the most notorious serial killers in america well the credentials help you know i'm, I'm a licensed minister I'm a, I'm a PhD in behavioral science. Um, so that, that helps. Um, you know, I, I, when I showed up at the prison, the correctional officer, I give him all the documentation. Uh, you know, David already knew about the visit and the correctional officer said to me, are you sure David Berkowitz knows you're here to see him? And I said, yeah, you can go back and check. He said, well, I'm surprised because he doesn't, doesn't see anybody. And uh, so, you know, the credentials, the rapport that I had developed through letter writing, um, I think the just the right time, just there's a sovereign aspect of this. I can't, nobody can take any credit for. He's he's 71. He had some serious health scares. And I think that with his heart issues, a, a triple bypass or quadruple bypass, um, some major surgery, he knows he's going to face his maker. And the time is running short. And I, I think deep down inside, David Berkowitz wanted to come clean. And the timing was just right for my arrival. Did you, I mean, yeah, obviously you're sitting across from this notorious serial killer. He's obviously advanced in his age now. I mean, was there any part of you that 
was expecting more of a powerful, more forceful presence, and then was was kind of taken aback to be in the presence of maybe a, a frail man who is you know ill of health. Actually, just the opposite. Yes, he does have. He walks with a limp because of a sciatic nerve pain going down the side of his body from sleeping on a mattress where that you can feel the pins, you know, popping through. Um, I'm sure many would say it's just that he sleeps that way, and I get it. I'm not arguing with that. Uh, David accepts it. He's not looking for you know uh, uh, overnight at the Hilton. He gets that you know the, his living conditions are part of the consequence. But he so he walks with a limp because of the sciatic nerve. But man, is he energetic? I'm expecting this lifer. You know, usually when guys got that much time to do, they've been in prison for 40 something years. They're so institutionalized. They just become sort of lazy, lethargic, helpless. Not David. David shows up like, I mean, he sort of sprints into the room uh, full of energy, full of purpose. He's, I mean, he is the busiest guy that I know. And he's behind bars. He has a schedule that he created. Every day, wakes up at five o'clock, makes his coffee. He's got a little coffee maker. Uh, he's got a television in his cell. He doesn't watch it much. He likes the animal channel. He's got about 46 channels. It's 16 inches big. And uh, he makes his coffee, reads his Bible. He prays. He's got a list of people that he prays for. Their names, their needs, people in the prison, people that write to him. He responds to letters from around the world. Suicidal teenagers. People at the cusp of destruction because they figured David Berkowitz is not going to judge me given his background. He's the last person to throw stones. The, the campus killer in Utah that killed four two years ago, uh, Kohlberger wrote David Berkowitz a letter. So he gets wow. this, these letters and he takes these letters seriously. He well, prays over them. Dr. Michael Pereira, we've just run out of time, unfortunately. This is a fascinating topic, topic that I could speak to you about for yes. hours, for sure. So I'll be putting your book on my list. Maybe you could let people know. Uh, yeah, there it is. Maybe let people know where they can find your book and uh, some more of your work. You can go to, I know it's not married properly, but you can go to Amazon. It was ranked number one new release, true crime, the serial killer subgenre in October for the first week. Um, you can buy it there. You can buy it in Spanish. So if you know Spanish, just I don't even want to say the titles. I'll mess it up. I'm Italian. But just write in the title in Spanish for Monster Mirror. Or you can look for Monster Mirror on Amazon paperback. Kindle. You can get it in Kindle. Or you can go on Barnes & Noble uh, today and uh, and order the copy, and it'll be in soon. Dr. Michael Caparelli, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, James. It's been a great opportunity. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Steven, Steven, I'm sorry. That's okay. I could be James is my middle name, so it's fine. You you kind of knew somehow. It's no, impressive. no, no. I actually I actually have a friend, James Knight. So ah, I, there you looked, go. I looked at Knight and my brain filled. To Jimmy. <laughs> Cheers, Happy Michael. New Year. Happy New Year, Steve. You too. Take care.